uh, right up here. She'll bring the microphone to you. We are being recorded by the uh, podcast uh, Bourbon Pursuit. So if you are into podcasting, I highly recommend you take a look at them. Hey everyone, so I'm a little late putting out this because I had a few messages of people saying, well, when's going to be the next podcast? And I wasn't going to actually release this one at all because it doesn't meet my standard of audio quality, but the people have spoken and you said you wanted to hear it no matter what, so here we go. This is from the Last Legend series by the Kentucky Derby Museum with Fred Minnick as the MC, and we had some audio malfunctions, and so this is the audio from the on-camera mic that is recording it in the room so it's not taking it directly from the source. So please bear that in mind. I did try cleaning up as much as I could, but consider this a one-off. I promise only better audio from here on out. I want to send a special thank you again to the Kentucky Derby Museum for partnering with us to be able to bring you this content. This is going to be the last podcast for a few weeks, and we're targeting mid-June to start bringing you new ones. We're starting to do a few different things. One, we've got to take some time to be able to set up new interviews. Uh, two, we're going to start getting a, a sweet new video intro completed. And then third, kind of the big hunt we're on right now, is we need to find some companies that want to partner with us to help support the show. So if you work at or maybe own a company that can use targeted advertisements for this type of demographic, please send me an email. It's the duo, T-H-E-D-U-O at burdenpursuit.com. Enjoy this week's episode. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. And they're off for another Gift 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to NoseYourBourbon.com 
and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. We're coming out, and right before we jump into it, I just want to talk to you a little bit about what's in front of you as far as tasting goes. So, you do have four samples in front of you, and left to right, it is the Whiskey Rare Series plus Birthday Bourbon. That's from the 2016 release. Um, the Whiskey Rose series, of course, is our craft extension, if you will. These are very, very smaller batches other than the parent brand, so these are very fine-tuned flavor profiles. Lower filtration on those, of course, is much better mouthfeel, very rich. Oh, hey, thank you. Um, but we're going to go in chronological order, and Fred is going to leave that tasting. I'm leaving you in good hands with that. I trust his palate just a little bit. But um, 1870, of course, being near that Old Forester was established by George Garvin Brown. 1897, the Bottle and Bond Act. And then 1920, of course, was the start of Prohibition countrywide. And Old Forester had a really special place then. But I know they're going to get into further details about those. I just wanted to introduce those for you. And I think I heard we're good to go. So we found a little bit of extra birthday bourbon. So we're going to be coming around pouring you more in your glass. So you'll get double the birthday, Urban. Okay, no one's going to complain about that. But I'll hand it back to you, and I'm going to get the evening started. Thank you, guys. Okay, well, the evening they should start with us with the with the heavy pours of uh, birthday bourbon. Uh, I, I it would be my first real drink of the day, and I, I don't see what that would be the wrong way to go. <laughs> So Campbell, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. I just want to say thank you so much for, for coming here. Uh, you, you're not like the master distillers and the brand ambassadors. You don't do this sort of thing. So uh, it's a real treat to talk to someone who's more of a behind-the-scenes uh, business guy in the industry. And this is a, a great opportunity for this audience to learn what that's like. So thank you so much for coming out. Happy to be a part of it. Well, absolutely. I want to start off real quick. You started in the mill. Yep. What was that a, in the ranking of the jobs? Where was where's the mill room set? Um, it's been hard to overcome what a fantastic experience that was. But in 22 years, um, there have been a few that have been a little bit more interesting and, and probably strategic than the mailroom, but I think um, anybody that has a mailroom story knows that it is a wonderful location to learn about the people that work at your company, you learn about departments, and you learn about um, the importance of keeping first-class mail separated from second-class mail at all costs because uh, often you do not want the first-class mail being left behind at the office with the second-class mail, especially if you're traveling the next day. And, and that was something that happened to an executive of ours and when I failed to separate the mail. I learned that was quickly, and then there was a bunch since then that I certainly picked up. But I did enjoy the mail. Any, any paper cut injuries or anything like that? I mean, it's a dangerous role, and it's one um, we weren't paid well. Uh, I think people knew that, um, but they knew the kind of courage it took to get the mail delivered every day. And I think people still look at me with a little bit of suspicion and awe. Yeah, well, you made the news, obviously. Yeah. You know, from, from mailroom to uh, kind of a 
your one of your niches was you were really into the, the global scene Correct. Of, of the company. Um, and now here we are in international just growth, unlike any time, anything we've ever seen. What was it like, uh, you know, 10, 20 years ago from an international perspective for Mervyn? Um, it was, I mean, so I, um, I started in 94 and I, I started working for our advancing markets group, which was kind of another word for emerging markets. And I was based in Louisville, but wanted to go and actually sell bourbon, sell our products overseas. And then that, uh, eventually ended up um, taking a job, uh, which was supposed to be kind of a four month, go help put together this joint venture, you're in, you're out, we're all good. And so I, I uh, moved to New Delhi, India, and within about a week of being in New Delhi, it became clear that there was no way I was coming home in four months. And I ended up um, getting an apartment uh, there and, and living. And what we were doing at the time was a joint venture to locally bottle um, Southern Comfort. And so we're importing some, some of the ingredients and then using Indian ingredients, using their glass, their labels, their closures, some of the sugars, uh, and mixing it with our ingredients um, that, that makes something so specific, and bottling it over there. And we, we, I did that for a year, and at the time, um, there was really no bourbon. And, and our job in the Advanced Markets Group was to really create American whiskey markets, which at the time for us meant Jack Daniels. And really the, 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 uh, the number one indicator we would use to uh, help guide our investments and where we would put people was where was Johnny Walker and where was Johnny Walker big. And India, as everybody knows, a lot of people know, I think was a, had a very big Indian-made foreign liquors, what they call whiskey um, category, and a massive middle class. And so there were a lot of companies like Ground Foreman going to India, beginning to try to set up a business in those countries, selling directly to the Indian population, taking advantage of this massive middle class. So um, it was more of a whiskey hunting expedition than it was really establishing Kentucky bourbon. Um, per se, that came uh, later, I would say. And India is a very large uh, market for their whiskey. Yeah. Which we wouldn't necessarily consume here. But uh, did you drink any of their native spirits? I, I did. I, I, um, the, our partners over there was a company called Jagged Jeep, and they had a new made foreign scotch called uh, Aristocrat. And um, it was, you know, developed so it tastes like scotch, which I think if you're actually a scotch drinker to begin with, this isn't such a bad thing. But I did not enjoy scotch. The flavor, the taste, the smell, anything to do with scotch at the time. So I found the whole thing, uh, you know, a bit of a challenge. Um, also, I was a little worried about kind of what you, the mixing side of stuff. Like, am I going to add water to this? Um, should I should I add the ice? Is the ice okay? Um, so I was drinking a lot of warm spirits, and most of the spirits that I was drinking are ones that I really didn't have had yet developed a taste for. Okay. So, not ideal. so that was not an ideal time for your bourbon 
consumption line. Uh, and you went over some of the other foreign markets that you worked. So I went, I went from uh, Manila and India. I went from Delhi and India to the Philippines in Manila. I spent a year in Manila, essentially doing a similar project where we were local bottling Southern Comfort. There was because there was such a large American population. Um, there are still a lot of bases over there, um, and both populations were very strong English speaking. So, as a marketer, it was easy to kind of set up brands, talk about brands, establish them, communicate to consumers directly about what we were doing. Um, but that, again, that was Southern Comfort, but there's quite a bit of Jack Daniels being consumed there as well. And I spent a year in the Philippines and then uh, ended up moving to Istanbul, and I lived in Turkey for three and a half years. And that's where um, our number one focus was on the importation and distribution, the establishment of Jack Daniels in a very big Scotch whiskey market dominated by Johnny Walker, dominated by Shades Regal. And it was the first uh, 50,000 case Jack Daniels market um, that was created in the Advancing Markets group over that three and a half years. Were you writing letters back home and saying, like, look what I'm doing, guys. Bring me home. Um, yeah, I mean, there was always that bring me home moment. Um, but I, I loved it. I mean, I've been dragging out of Turkey, and I left India in tears. I mean, it was just such an emotional experience, and you're young, and you meet people, and, and you're doing these very interesting jobs. And, and so they're, they all have a very special place. So. I like being there. The funniest thing was, if, if you know Mac Brown. So Mac and his entire family, which I think was like 90% of the Brown family, um, they came to, uh, to Turkey with Robbie Brown, his dad, and his mom. It was a big uh, trip, and, and we did not have Old Forester in Turkey. And I would imagine that um, Turkey was probably the first quasi-Middle Eastern country in the world to have Old Forester there. And we got a good sense of where he was going to be and where he was staying. And we had bottles of Old Forester kind of well-positioned in every bar um, that that family went to uh, through Turkey to Dubai and everywhere else. So um, thank God for Mac and, and, and his very, uh, he was unwavering in his support. I don't think Jack Daniels would be a substitute for him and his mom. Um, at that time. That's the case for a lot of people at Brown Forum. They're Old Forester or Jack Daniels or Woodford, but within your own company, you have a lot of brand loyalty. Yeah, I mean, I think at any, any, of, any of these portfolio companies, um, people line up against their favorite brands. And, and, and I think as new brands are brought into companies, uh, tequilas, new types of new, they become very shiny and exciting, and they tend to get a lot of attention. I think Old Forester certainly at Brown Foreman has a very special place in the hearts of every employee there today, all of our retirees. I mean, those that have you know grown up with that brand and have worked at Brown Foreman, and we have people that work at Brown Foreman, God bless them, for 30, 35, 40 years. Um, Old Forester tends to be their kind of beacon and, and their, their kind of true north. And, I think we're very fortunate as a result of that. And so 
there are certainly a lot of gentlemen Jack drinkers and, and, and early times and all the other great brands, but uh, I think people have, have a very special place in their, in their palates for Forrest. So I'm curious, the people who uh, work in uh, Brown Farm Proper in Louisville, do they secretly hate Jack Daniels because of the Tennessee whiskey? Impossible. I mean, I, I think um, at the end of the day, uh, our company has been as successful as it has been and has been able to be such a great, uh, I think so, really a, a good citizen of this community, largely as a result of our ability to um, grow and foster a really strong franchise of uh, consumers and brands that are supported by arguably the greatest trademark of uh, liquor in our industry. I, I think if you talk to anybody at Brown Foreman, they would all have um, really great things to say about Jack Daniels. I think we all acknowledge the role that that brand has played in in our lives, in our children's lives. In our Your children are drinking it. Not my children. Okay. No, no, no. No. <laughs> no. I know I know what you're saying. Yeah. Right? I was yeah. So the uh, old Forster, on the other hand, was all, was also in the family for as uh, you know, actually before Jack Daniels enters the picture, and yet it's kind of neglected. Uh, you know, you know, after when Bourbon starts falling, falling, and you guys invest a little bit in uh, light whiskey that didn't work out, and, which you can't speak the name in your company, but uh, the old Forster is really neglected for a very long period. In your company's yeah. history, you know, you know, I think a lot of bourbons were neglected, and um, and I, I don't know if neglect is the most accurate descriptor of, of what transpired from probably um, the early sixties until literally five, six years ago with Old Forge. Yeah. I think um, it was obvious that there. I mean, one of the reasons why the model Jack Daniels became available was that the Motlows could not afford to grow the brand. And as Brown Foreman uh, became owners of the, of the Jack Daniels trademark, the resources required to make that brand go. Remember, all through the 70s and 80s, Jack Daniels was heavily allocated. I remember my father lived in LA, the West Coast, and, and there were liquor stores you couldn't walk into because A, they knew who he was, and they could not understand why they couldn't get Jack Daniels in his liquor store. And so he was persona non grata until they got that sorted out. And then so there was a, you know, I, it is a brand that just required um, attention, a lot of attention, and given the opportunity that I think people were predicting, um, you know, resources had to be split um, unevenly and, and, and disproportionately over you know, decades. And at the same time, you had um, the explosion of vodka on the scene and imported vodkas. And so that in itself put a lot of stress in the, the federal excise taxes. So there was a lot of stress from all sorts of areas coming down on bourbons and, and, and having flavored products. And I think to attribute uh, the decline of Old Forester to 
something that happened organically at Brown Foreman is a little short-sighted given everything that was happening uh, to our industry at that time. And really, you know, for, I think the great thing is to focus on the fact that over that entire period where the brand, you know, was over a million cases, well, not, you know, it was less than 100,000 a couple of years before I took over. It's now trending nicely um, over 150,000 cases uh, and growing at a really great rate. Most families, most certainly most publicly traded companies, um, I don't think would have held on to Old Forester. They certainly would have done um, things that could have damaged that brand irreparably, um, trying to do something to jumpstart it. And we never did that. We never took the product off the market. Um, we never mothballed it. Uh, we never held on to the trademark and just said, hey, we'll wait for a, a, a sunnier day. And that brand uh, always had our attention. It, you know, it was a brand, you know, if you ever went to an annual shareholders meeting, there's never any questions at those annual shareholders meetings. But every now and then, somebody would raise their hand and ask a question about Old Forrester. And that's pretty remarkable. And, and I think it's also one of the great stories of why we feel very fortunate to, to be here to be talking to you about yeah. Old Forrester right now is probably something that a lot of, I wouldn't have expected 10 years ago. Well, let's go ahead and uh, quench some pallets out there. I can see people glaring at me saying, shut up, start drinking, <laughs> you know? People are very... So we're actually starting with uh, the 1870. Uh, so um, when this came out, it, this is the one that uh, was initially blended by Marion Barnes, correct? When it first came out. Yeah. And then she left shortly thereafter. Correct. Did that, did that shock you? When, when she when she left? Um, well, I mean, I think we have a lot of talented people at our company. Um, I think, and we talk about millennials too. I mean, I think there is a huge appetite for for um, skilled people to do more, and she got a great opportunity, and she's followed that, and it's, you know, she's doing something really inspirational, I think, for women everywhere, and for distillers everywhere, and I think everybody wants to see her succeed and do well. Um, you know, I, I think we're proud of the fact that um, that she was recognized and noticed for what she had done at Brown Foreman, um, and so I, I, I think, I don't know if I was shocked. I think it was probably this product that put her on the map more than, uh, than the file. Because this was, when this came out, it was a very, uh, it, was a, it was a nice addition to uh, the bourbon shelves because we'd yeah. seen the same old Forester for years, and now we see uh, 1870. So everyone can have it, just take it in, have a taste. So that the idea to come up to come up with this craft series, what was the what was the strategy behind you know this new packaging online line that's basically this, this entirely new series for a brand that had just been uh, you know been basically two products for, for a long time. Well, yeah, I, I think that there was some there was a level of anticipation around the category and um, 
the role that craft could play. Um, we had seen some brands come onto the scene um, that were, uh, you know, coming from out of nowhere, kind of on scratch with these interesting stories. And you know, we had a brand, you know, Forrester that has lived in the market for years through a number of very important milestones in our industry. And um, and people have always said, you know, it is such a great quality product and it's at such a great price. And so if you know you have kind of the, the, the fundamentals right on the brand, are there things that you can do to um, provide consumers with a different expression of what they've become used to? And, and we certainly wanted to go explore our history, some of the processes that have been employed in the past, and look for ways in which we could extend the brand, uh, but in a way that felt good to enforce it. And, and that was really following our timeline and following history. And, and that's kind of what led to it. And, you know, Chris and uh, you know, the production team, they all have a real uh, affinity and uh, I think a lot of respect for the whiskey making process and how it's developed and evolved over time. And so this was a way to explore that a little bit. I have a question for you that I think a lot of people in the audience will appreciate. Um, you mentioned pricing, and a lot of us do not understand why there's a one bottle on the shelf that's four to six years old and it's $85. Yep. In 1920, I can buy for um, I think 50 bucks right now. Explain to me how you're able to price uh, or explain to me the pricing strategies and how people even determine the price of a bottle of bourbon on a shelf. We will play into that at times. Um, you know, and, and frankly, it's, you know, it, it is a supply, a supply and demand uh, equation, but the, I think as well, there's levers to pull with respect to availability. Um, you know, how fast do you want to grow in Canada? How fast do you want to go to France and Germany? Um, and those are kind of the, the debates that we have internally about what we're able to, what we think we should do with um, the product that we have available to put in bottles. Just don't increase the price in 1920. Uh, we'll be marching on Washington. Okay. Uh, you do that. As long as you don't want to pick it signs and get it yeah. somewhere else out there. We'll have uh, picket signs and uh, all sorts of sure. stuff. And your know, politics run deep in your family, so. We're not, uh, we're not going there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not going into politics. <laughs> I promise. Uh, but I do want to say on pricing. Um, it, so, you're, you know, some of the best bang for your buck is Old Forester, but you're obviously, you obviously care more about this entry than just your brand. You want to see everyone succeed. Uh, you're part of the KDA, you're part of helping smaller distillers, and you're, you know, the Brown family is really good for mentoring uh, other uh, smaller companies. Uh, should a consumer buy uh, a craft whiskey or a bourbon in that Eighty to hundred dollar range, just because they want, they should be supporting that distiller. I see no reason why they should not. That is, yeah. I mean, that's. I think there's. Uh, I think one of the great things about bourbon right now is there's so much choice. There's so yeah. much different. Uh, there's more variety out there in this category than there ever has been. And I think so many of our consumers that enjoy bourbon want to be able to 
compare and contrast the different styles, the different proofs, the different ages, and you know, for for so many of us, it's, it is a hobby, and so you invest what your budget allows you to invest around your hobby. And um, I would say the more frustrating thing is just the availability side. Yeah, you know, that's where. I mean, I, I know uh, the worst time of year for us uh, on the brand team is when we figure out how much birthday bourbon we have. And, um, you know, we're kind of insulated a little bit from the consumer by it, but the, the, our sales organization um, that can get very vicious. Yeah. And they, they have long memories. That's good. That's good for uh, How do you decide to open? What's the process that goes into opening uh, a new market? Um, well, first of all, is availability. Do we do we actually do we have a product? Um, I think, and I'll go back to Jack Daniels. Jack Daniels has been a wonderful um, um, bright light that we can follow to help us. It's created relationships. It's created awareness around American products and tastes and flavors, and so. That's often a good sign. Um, we will often look to the bartenders in those markets and, and see where they're going and what they're doing with their cocktail culture. Um, uh, ultimately, especially you know Australia is an easy one because there's so much so much bourbon has been has been available there for decades, and you want to be a part of that. Um, but they've also had very, very high taxes and barriers to entry that, that you know don't allow for explosive growth. It's really a, it's a, it's a, it's a slow burning process there. Um, but you, you look for demand and, and you look for where you know we have people now in all of these markets and, and they've created their own bourbon and whiskey strategies and and ultimately they're the ones that come to us and say, no, we're ready for a forester. We've got a great whiskey strategy. We think that this brand really allows us and our sales organization to tell a whiskey story that nobody else can tell. Diageo can't tell this story. Pernod uh, Ricard can't tell this story. Um, but with Old Forester, we can tell this authentic uh, generational story that we believe um, can help us sell all of our whiskeys. Speaking of stories, let's go to uh, 1897. Okay. The Whiskey Row 1897, and what is probably one of the one of the greatest uh, pieces of congressional legislation in our country's history, the Bottle and Bond Act, the Celebrates. I think you were named president right around when this came out, because you were right. The series started before you it did. Took no. No. You've, uh, yeah, they made it very easy for me to come yeah. to this job. <laughs> they did all the hard work, right? Yeah, they, they, they really uh, you've done, you've done exceptional things, but uh, not long after you, you take the helm, you have a tragedy. Uh, the, the fire in town. What was that like? That was not good. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it was one of those things where I was sitting in my office, it was towards the end of the day, I think it was even a Friday or something, and uh, one, of the, one of my friends who worked up, you know, up on the fifth floor there with Paul and the gang, calls me and he's like, hey, a buddy of mine who works, uh, one of the law firms called me, he says, whiskey goes on fire. 
I haven't heard anything like that. Like, uh, he says that a small can enough in Whiskey Row. So I'm like, well, which, it's, it's a whole row. Like, where on Whiskey Row is a small coming? And then you turn on your TV, and I think they had a helicopter up there already, and they, were, uh, they had a live feed. And there was, there was so much smoke, you had no idea where the fire was. And, um, you know, and you're, you're, my heart sank. Um, you know, I called my beach, who's doing the project. You know, you're like, do I go down there? What can I do? What would someone And I literally, I've been to your point, I've been in this job for just a few months. Um, and, um, and so then you start getting phone calls, and I went, I went down there for a second, and uh, it was chaos. But we, you know, knew that it was still staying away from our buildings, but uh, you didn't have an appreciation for how long it would go on for and kind of the damage and it was pretty brutal um but i mean miraculously nobody was injured uh there, there were nobody was died in the process um we're all back building and constructing um i think it challenged us in, in some of our planning and, and and actually all of us that worked out there i think it brought us all together uh, in, a, in a stronger partnership in terms of really understanding and supporting each other and what we were doing and the kind of investment we were making and, and how important those buildings are. And then, of course, you start finding out, like, oh, this is like the second time those buildings have caught fire. And, It'll probably happen again. Oh, so, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was pretty surreal. I, was, I went down there immediately to, you know, take pictures and kind of see it. And, uh, one thing that... And how you're able to keep yours in that really affordable spot? Well, I mean, the two main things that play into price are what's it cost to make, right? That's the main thing. I mean, the what what's, what kind of glass, what kind of flavors, you know, what's your product, what's the efficiency of the distillery? What's there's, there are some real fundamental, measurable um, inputs into any bottle of any product that you've got to be able to represent your price. Um, I think the one really great thing about this brand, the one thing that I think we're really fighting to establish as a hallmark of who we are is that we, we do not want to get the most possible money we can out of every bottle of bourbon we sell. It's unnecessary for us. And so we actually want to stand out a little bit because we're accessible. You know, we, we want bartenders to know that they're getting a great bourbon and they can charge a price that they feel comfortable with, um, have a nice ticket ring up for them, but it's not going to break their bank, the consumer's bank. Um, you know, and it's hard. It's really a hard balance to strike. There's a lot of people that are, are part of the pricing discussion. Consumers are certainly a big piece of that. Uh, distributor, retail, uh, wholesale partners, retailers, um, and and so you're you're constantly looking at it. And the the other uh, piece is that you can't control all of your inputs. You can't control corn prices from day to day, or wood, or your access to um, certain grains, um, or you know some disaster. Now.
If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon. The farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. So we, what we've seen, I was really impressed by, was uh, firemen. Yeah. Um, we have some amazing firemen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did you have uh, interactions with the fire chief? Or? We did, yeah. We, um, we, I think we had two. Well, when we actually did an official groundbreaking, it was around um, our shareholders' um, meeting in July. We invited the, the chief down and a lot of the first responders that were there that day, um, recognized their work, Paul did, uh, myself, Garvin, uh, our chairman. Um, and, and then we had, even had a, um, we hosted a, uh, a lunch and another recognition point for all of the first responders and firemen down there, I think a couple months later. Um, so we've certainly, um, you know, I had an opportunity to kind of look them in the eye and, and thank them for, for their efforts and, and kind of the, the brave steps that they took and the measures they took to, to save those buildings. And what conflict? Well, I mean, I'm not entirely sure. I, I think it was a um, one of these, you know, that there was work going on. I just started down there and, and um, I think people left for the day and um, either a spark or a tool was still kind of hot and, it's just one of those crazy, uh, unfortunate accidents. Yeah. Well, thank God everyone's all right. One of the things that you all did was you, you saved the brick. You saved right. the cascade. I mean, uh, wouldn't it have been just cheaper to let it tumble and rebuild? Yeah, you know, and I think that that debate had happened many years, a few years before, and, and so anybody, everybody who was a part of this process knew that that wasn't going to be an option, and that, in fact, we, we had the engineers down there, we all had the capabilities to, to look at it a little bit differently than, than you know, something that's really dependent on, um, you know, more real estate transactional values, and, and so, 
that, that was that wasn't a consideration because you know we we want I mean look my great great grandfather had office in that building at the turn of the century uh, and. You know, one of the reasons why we were so excited about acquiring it was the fact that we would be able to extend the story. And so pulling those bricks apart, tearing it down, really never fit into any of our vision. That would be like tearing your soul out a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it would be pretty tragic. Your family um, and what it has done for Louisville is amazing and what it's done for Burn is amazing I mean you you have uh, your little royalty and your bourbon royalty what's it like being a brown well I actually grew up in Montreal um, you know, my mother's Canadian uh, a long line of Casey's from Ireland and uh, while I was born in Louisville I grew up, I grew up in Canada and so it's interesting. I mean, I was ambivalent to a lot of the stuff that I'm now deeply familiar with, um, and pretty proud of. I think the um, you know we've had great um, leaders within our family that have made a point to um, help our communities and. Our, you know, the people that live in our communities to uh, even do some of the stuff that may be, you know, whether it's in the arts or education or parks, um, you know, it doesn't always kind of blow off the tip of the tongue as, you know, this is critical to our city. But in the long term, I mean, our family, one great thing is that they really are long-term thinkers, is that those um, areas are fundamental to a thriving city and a thriving community, and uh, they attract um, other, you know, community uh, participants. Um, I think more and more uh, companies have to take a bigger role in, uh, in in how our communities talk to each other, how we associate to, with each other. Um, what we, you know, what does the agenda need to look like in Louisville or in Kentucky? If, if we can play a role there, um, to at least you know, um, provide for the discussion and debate and everything else. I think that's what makes people really, um, whether they're doing it financially or intellectually or with their time, I just, it, it makes a vibrant city. And I think folks like Alzi Brown is a great example of someone that um, just loved the city, loved uh, what the city had done for our family, for our business, um, and to not be able to um, uh, Give back in some form, I think, would be uh, absolutely uh, against anything he, he or anyone ever really stand, stood for. I have read uh, George Garvin Brown's uh, memoir, and I've read memos of Brown Foreman throughout uh, your company's history. And the language and the voice uh, what appears to be the culture has always been the same. And that's fascinating to me. Um, what is the brown woman culture? Um, well, I mean, you know, I, I think the, the interesting thing about brown woman, why we've got a lot of employees that have been a part of our company uh, and we've been a part of their lives for decades is that um, it, there is a family 
presence there. And, and I think that that provides some continuity. You can actually see some of the people that own the company in the hallways. You can hold us accountable. Um, I think the, uh, the, the culture really today is established as, um, as broadly by our employee base as it is by, by any family member. Um, and I think we all just believe in the ideas of integrity and respect and trust. Um, you know, there, there is a, you know, we're just an active group of people. We've got these uh, employee resource groups now that um, allow employees to come together that are African-American, or female leaders in the company, or just new female employees, or uh, LGBT, or non-drinkers, or people like me. I'm, like almost 50, so I've got a group now, they got. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's just, they're, they're, I think there's just been that kind of, and a lot of companies are doing it today too. You know, I, I just, I think it's, there, I think there is a, a bit of a gap that, that um, companies need to, to fill, and we're seeing that happen, which is great. Where's your, where's your office now? Are you in the, on the Dixie Highway, or are you, I'm down at Dixie Highway. When this opens up in the... Uh, They'll never see me again. I will be down in Whiskey Road. Yeah. No, I don't. I, I mean, I, I, I hope I'm down, down on Whiskey Road. I'm not sure I'd like to be. Do you hope to stay with Old Forester for the rest of your career, or will you... Will they call you up for something else? Um, I, you know, it's funny. I mean, I, you know, I've had a number of jobs. I'm like, okay, this is it. This is great. I'm good. You know, you don't want another job. I'm fine, and they're like, "Hey, how would you like to be a little force?" What does that mean? And, and so, yeah, I'm I'm very happy with with where I am, who I get to work with, what we're doing with the brand. Um, you know, I, I spend more time in Louisville, which means I spend more time with my family. So, yeah, I'm um, I'm pretty content. You know, I joined our board recently, and. and um, uh, you know, it, it's just it's, it's a really it's a nice time to um, be here, be a part of everything Burn Film is doing. It's a good time to be in the Burn. It sure is. Yeah, it really. Uh, and now let's go to what is one of my favorite uh, was one of my favorite bourbons of last year. And actually, uh, I was telling you about this earlier. Yeah. This is uh, 1920. Uh, this was a contender for uh, uh, Whiskey Advocates. Uh, Bourbon of the Year. Uh, they had, for with American Whiskey of the Year, they ended up going to uh, Booker's Rye, which is exceptional. It was the last thing Booker know had made. But uh, it's hard to beat this right now for the money. It's just, uh, it's the right proof, very full. What's your best selling old forester from, uh, let's say, not from, a, not from a volume perspective, but just like you can't keep it on the shelves? Well, the obvious is birthday bourbon. Birthday bourbon. After, after birthday bourbon. Yeah. So, I mean, 1920 has been a bit of a, an eye-opener to us, and, uh, and our, it caught us off guard. You know, we, we had to run back and get some bottles um, filled that we, we ran out very quickly. Um, it's uh, reignited the entire conversation around uh, the Whiskey Rose series. Um, I, you know, it caught me off guard mostly because as such a high proof product, you know, you don't expect the kind of um, repurchasing that happens. Let me explain to you yeah, why. Please. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who here likes high proof bourbon? 
Alright, so every one of these people here are what we would call whiskey geeks. Yeah. Uh, people who have developed flavors and just understood uh, what whiskey is and how it should taste. And we get more out of a uh, higher proof product because we can dilute it what we want. But once you go down to 90 proof or 80 proof, we can't we can't come back up. We can't enjoy it. And so we don't know what that flavor was like. And that and what's interesting about that is I know, I know that you all you make more money off the lower proof stuff unless you increase your price exponentially on the higher proof. But the flavor you get in that 115 in comparison to something that's in that 90 to 95 range, it's night and day. It's just night and day. So, uh, and I think your very brown formula was actually against Maryland drink products in the company. And the first one was the Jack Daniels a couple years ago. So why, why the kind of corporate um, you know, stance against Barrel strength products. I don't know if there's a like, against. I think, um, and you've been around us long enough to know. I mean, we're, we're a conservative company. I think that conservatism probably plays into some of it. it makes you, you know, you really want to understand what you're doing with proof. And, and and there was a time, frankly, you know, when I was on the sales side, where these higher proof products were being used probably not in the savor and really experiment with that I you know it's like how fast can I get there? And they yeah. would be put on chilling machines and they would be, you know, consumed as shots all the time. And that's not a business that's sustainable and I don't think it's a business that we really want to be in there trying to create um, a base of business. It would be very um, consistent about responsibility what it means to our model and to our brands and, and to our employees. And, and I think now, to your point, there has been a shift and people really are um, buying higher proof products because they want to explore the, the flavor wheel, so to speak. And not I mean, some of the best, uh, some of the best uh, bourbons I've ever tasted uh, were, you know, 1950s and 60s old foresters. Mm-hmm. And then straight from your barrels today. I mean, that flavor profile is really nice in that yeah. uncut, kind of unfiltered, uh, or even a you know lower barrel strength at 115. So please, please, you know, keep keep doing that. So yeah, Jackie over there is probably our, our you know she's the one that's doing the loudest whispering in terms of we've got to get a little bit more creative um, when we think about, especially when we get the distillery open, I think we'll be able to do some um, fun things with, with, with barrels. She's smart. Yeah. Yeah. She's very smart. She's in the airport for a reason. So, <laughs> I want to talk about another product that you all no longer own uh, and that you are a part of. Uh, Brown Corman recently sold Southern Comfort. Uh, I was with the, with the company for, for a long time. So, so, Sold it to uh, Satisfact. Was that? Is that it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, Mark Brown actually hired me at Brown Foreman. Uh, yeah? Yeah. Mark Brown is the president of uh, Satisfact Buffalo Trade, something that it through. And used to work at uh, Brown Foreman. Yep. Was, that, was that a difficult one for you personally to, to see leave the portfolio? <sighs> 
Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure. It was, uh, I mean, I, I worked on that brand in my very first roles at the company. Um, I enjoyed drinking the brand. We, I was there kind of for the long, you know, from that, for that period of decline when we saw those other flavored spirits come in that were really filling the gap that Southern Comfort owned um, yeah. for so many years. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was, it's got a great history. Um, the Hunt Proof was a fantastic product. I think that brand helped us uh, from an innovation standpoint and gave us a little bit of confidence around our, 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 our ability to innovate. Um, but it was hard. I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a tough brand to sell. Um, and when you're selling a portfolio and, you know, you want uh, that, as few of those possible, um, but yeah, I mean, it's you know it's a brand that. And you all, I might think you all have the best ad campaign with the big fat guy walking around yeah, that was shirtless and uh, yeah. not doing good, good music there. Yeah. Maybe you know he made me feel comfortable about myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you made a lot of people in the liquor business feel comfortable about themselves. <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't see the commercial, the big hairy guy walking around and sometimes a speedo, speedo. and uh, yeah. YouTube it, you'll regret it later. <laughs> but uh, so let's let's take a look at your best-selling product here. I don't think we got uh, three quarters of yeah. well, uh, We got left out on the reports. Everyone else got a report of the old course already. No? Oh, we're still waiting on that? Okay, so we'll, we'll hold, on, hold on on that. Um, I'll just, we'll just finish our, we'll, we'll wait for the, the, the next bottle to come around, but, uh, so we'll, we'll just keep talking then. Um, so bourbon is, it's back. It's back. Yeah. What's, what's next? More bourbon. Where? Do, do we see an end to this incredible uh, growth? So, I think what we may see is um, a redefinition of, of what kind of growth is, right? I think um, the, the category continues to grow really, really nicely against all sorts of price points and all the different on-premise and off-premise channels. There's a ton of opportunity outside of North America that is just being take, uh, touched right now. So I think we'll, we'll continue to see very good growth. I think, you know, what we're all kind of anticipating now are what, how will the new bourbons impact our, the category's ability to grow um, the overall size of the pie? Because I think a lot of these um, new distillers don't have bourbons yet. And so I think we'll see another kind of influx of, thank you. That's great. We'll see another kind of, like another step up in, in, in volume when some of those bourbons become bourbons. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that's a great thing for people in our industry talking. We have long, pretty long horizons, and, and trends don't kind of change like they do in tech. Um, it's vodka. I mean, last year there was a report. You know, the uh, sales numbers were that vodka grew two percent. Yeah. Um, have we officially knocked it 
All right, has Bourbon officially knocked it down enough where it's going to stop growing a little bit? I know. I think Bourbon, you know, vodka will continue to grow. I think that they're also doing some neat, innovative things um, that are less flavor-driven and more just kind of processed. Obviously, yeah. being vodka, yeah. you know, they can't be flavored. How much can you do? Yeah. Um, you know, I think gin is another area that's getting a lot of attention right now. I think rums are an exciting area to be in. Um, uh, you know, again, what's happening with the, the rye category is really exciting. Um, you know, we may see some more weeded, kind of American style bourbons. We're Irish whiskeys. They got just the overall whiskey world is a great place to be in. Bourbon is getting the majority of the attention. I think it will continue to for quite some time. Um, I, you know, again, it's like anything. We, as we've seen the growth on Old Forester kind of take flight in Washington State and California and Arizona, um, it's impressive and it's growing fast. And those it's, are parts of the country that were not bourbon centric in the right. you know pre nineteen eighty. Right. So one one uh, one one category that uh, people always bring up for for bourbons regrowth is, is flavored whiskey. Uh, it seems like that's plateaued out a little bit. We're not getting as uh, many new flavored products as we used to. Does flavored whiskey ran its course? Yeah, I mean, I'm probably not the best person to talk to around Foreman about about flavored whiskeys. Um, the uh, I don't think it's run its course. I think it's actually still contributing to a lot of the growth of flavored okay. whiskey. I think um, I people are becoming. Um, more selective of the flavors, and we'll probably see it evolve into maybe um, flavors that are closer to the traditional grains that are being used. You'll see less of you know the the, the, the cinnamons and whatnot. Maybe just more around different styles of I mean corn and different grains. You know that that to me seems like a logical place. And I mean, I feel like we play with flavor on Forest all the time, but we don't get any credit for it. Um, because we're not, you know, adding a cinnamon or a honey or Actually, no, you're going to be praised for that for not adding anything, you know, seriously. Uh, to me, the best flavor, the best flavor bourbon out there is the one that's just a barrel, you know. And uh, this flavored whiskey category, my opinion, is, is bad for, for Americans. You and I are just outside that target demographic. Yeah. No, not much. Oh, yeah. So uh, maybe when I was uh, a fraternity, you know, back in college, yeah. I was going to go to black. Not anymore. No. No. Uh, so let's let's taste a good bourbon flavored bourbon and the uh, old Forester birthday bourbon. Uh, I assume everyone's got the report now. Uh, sometimes with these older older bourbons, when they sit out too long, they a little bit evaporates and it gets a little um, milky color, but uh, the old uh, the old Forster birthday bourbon is really one of those where every year people go nuts for it. They go absolutely nuts for it. So enjoy this pork and you can't find it. Do you have a favorite or not? Uh, of the birthday bourbons? Uh, we did this thing in Mark uh, over when was that? No, uh, September. I had my jaw wired shut. 
So I had to do it all through a straw. Um, but I participated. And we had sixteen of the birthday bourbons out there, and I thought like the '07. I think that was the one that really struck me, and, and um, I like this the, the the one from last year. But is this the hundred proof? That was two years ago. I think this was uh, probably my favorite in the last few years too. Very nice. Can we uh, be expecting any new line extensions from Old Forces? Yes, you can. Awesome. What are they? I can't tell you. They're going to be great. Will we see A statements? Or, you know, I mean, that's kind of some of the stuff that we're toying around with, right? When, when that distillery gets completed, we've got a dedicated bottle line that gives us some flexibility. And, you know, just we can do smaller runs of things. Um, my great grand, uh, my grandfather, George Gardner II, he introduced a um, a line called President's Choice. Yes. And so we were like we're trying to figure out how we want to resurrect that idea, um, where we kind of pick small, like a couple barrels. It may not happen every year. We're bottle, you know, just we're, we're just playing around with different ideas. So that's something, and then there's a couple of other supplements, and and then we're kind of approaching um, Brown Foreman's 150th anniversary. Okay. We'll do, um, I imagine we'll do something around that. I don't know if that may be really low availability. Um, but actually, some well, yeah. Yeah. So be, be, um, yeah, we're certainly we're really pleased with what's happening with with whiskey well and how people are reacting to it, and uh, I think it's fun for for all folks. Will Will everything stay bourbon, or will you uh, try a rye or a malt or anything like that? I think it's good idea. Yeah. From <laughs> <laughs> a uh, for when you're, when, when is it going to be ready downtown? The distillery? Yeah. It's not ready. Um, <laughs> yeah, it'll be ready. Okay. Um, it'll be ready spring. That's about as narrow as we go. Spring of 2018. So, I mean, we've got a lot. We put in the, the fermenters went in a month ago, I feel. Um, I, mean, the, I mean, it is coming together. I mean, there's, Concrete blocks going in, the, the, the stairways are set, the elevator um, areas are set. We'll be bringing in the still this summer. Um, we'll be uh, putting in the bottom line shortly after that. Um, roof goes on, I think, in October, uh, August. Yeah. And then um, We've got to test all this stuff, right? Make sure it works. It's going to work. But and the Shiley facility will still continue to be in your work. That's the that's the, that, yeah. Yeah, that's the work. Do you have uh, uh, a distiller picked out for for this new Gold uh, Forester stuff, or will it just bring people over from from Shiley? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Honestly, that means yeah. It's just yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's going to work out really well. It's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, at least you're honest. You know, I mean, I asked you a close question. You answered it great. Uh, what do you think 
about this this explosion of, of ride we're seeing. Uh, Brown Foreman's had a, a couple nice rides uh, come out. Do you, do you see that as a compliment to bourbon, or is that a potential competition on the shelf? Well, I think it's a compliment. I think I think it allows. I mean, just from you know, we all know the master distillers and, and the folks that are the master blender. They're um, they want the ability to go and create things and, and develop things. And so, why is a great opportunity to just I think for brands and for individuals to demonstrate their ability, their capacity to innovate and make things different, um, but keep them all fairly tight in association. So I think they're, they're great for the brands, they're great for the consumers. They, most of them have turned out to be excellent. Um, you know, as a uh, part Canadian, you know, rye has got a unique spot in, in, in that, uh, kind of that culture. And, and, um, and I think these are far superior rye than some of the rye that were available in the 70s in uh, yeah. Ontario. Do yeah. you drink a lot of Canadian whiskey? Um, <laughs> Canadian whiskey is around four months uh, Canadian whiskey. Um, I honestly, I drink, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm having a love affair with Old Forester, so yeah. I'm trying to... It's, kind of, it's actually one of those brands where once you get a palate for it, it's, yeah. it's very specific in its flavor profile. It is difficult to, to go to a different category. Probably okay in bourbon, but to go to different categories. Well, my, my father-in-law, who lives in London, Ontario, um, actually hasn't developed a taste for bourbon yet, and, and which is disappointing. Um, but he, he loves uh, uh, Collingwood, and, and he does drink uh, community mess, so usually when I'm visiting them, that we'll do Manhattan's and we'll do them with, uh, without a column or a mess. I've at least gotten to remove uh, Super 7 from this. <laughs> that was hard. Yeah. No judging. Uh, well, Campbell, thank you so much for being here. Anyone, everyone, if you can grab your, yeah, any of that. I'm looking at the audience, looks like you guys drank it all. Uh, but if you have any left, uh, from Canada to the mail room, India to the presidency of uh, probably the most historic uh, bourbon brand we have on the shelf right now. Cheers, Thank you for being here. Now we'll uh, open it up to the audience for questions. Uh, right over here, she'll bring the microphone to you. We are being recorded by the uh, podcast uh, Bourbon Pursuit. So if you are into podcasting, I highly recommend you take a look at them. We'll later. Hey, how are you? Uh, question. I know that uh, Japan is big in the bourbon world. Do you guys have any bourbons that are specific just to Japan? I know that uh, Four Roses does. And you can't get it anywhere here in the States. Do you guys have anything like that? Yeah, yeah we do. Uh, early Times is a bourbon in Japan. So that product, uh, I think, may be available in a few more markets now, but uh, certainly when I was working overseas, um, we were selling quite a bit of uh, what we call yellow label because of the color of the label. Um, 86 bourbon, uh, four year old, Early Times. 
and you think it'll be available here at some point or I don't know I, I, I don't know they actually have an early times product uh, called early times 354 yeah. uh, on the shelf that was a bourbon they do have early times Kentucky whiskey that's available but it's uh, it's aged and used cooperage so it can't be called bourbon it's called Kentucky whiskey uh, but uh, they took uh, early times 354 off the market a couple of years ago interesting that's story it was good it was yeah. good yeah. Yeah. I like that yeah. uh, interesting story is that uh, in the 1950s, it was actually the number one selling bourbon uh, in the country, and, uh, yeah. and, it, and it held that title for, for for a very long time. So it is a little sad <laughs> to not see early times bourbon on the shelves, but I think I would prefer to see Old Forester with what you guys are doing. Have brand news. You got when you got branded Kentucky whiskey, it was hard to bring it back as bourbon. Just wanted to ask you that what you think that the, the key factor in the gives Old Forester's unique flavor? What, what is the what creates that profile? Well, I mean, I think what we talk about the most is uh, the balance that the brand has, and and, and that's why it's been so popular, especially the last four or five years, as um, behind the bar for, for professional bartenders. Um, God believe that um, the, the the barrels that we make um, at Bethlehem Cooperage play a pretty significant role in, in the end product's flavor. Um, we've clearly got a good mash bill, um, but, but I think because it is such a well-balanced bourbon, it, it, it's, it's hard to isolate one particular aspect of, of the process, whether it's fermentation days or, or um, the proof. Uh, it, it really is a good combination, but I, I always kind of come back to the, the, the cooperages and, and uh, the wood sitting in it. Jackie, ma'am. I was going to say your yeasts, uh, uh, they have a, a lot of, almost the, when someone starts a distillery, the first thing they do is they send headhunters in to try and steal people from Brown Corn. Uh, the distilling talent they have there is exceptional. Yes, sir. I've been in restaurants in Louisville when they, the restaurant might take advantage of the, the price point. And I've had it so many times, I know that what the range is, you all ever step into the distributor or someone to, to approach a restaurant or a company and say, hey, it's gotten back to us. You're you're charging way over the price that we suggest that you sell it for, and it makes us all look bad. Here, does that ever happen? I mean, uh, at Louisville, there are so many people that are familiar with the brand and, the, and, and what they buy it for, and, and whether they're employees of the company or lifelong drinkers of one of our brands. I, I think that there's a natural check in place here, but we we. Just can't play that role. I mean, we, you know, this is a, you know, we, we set a price, we set a fair price, we have a recommended retail price, we ask people to meet um, that. Um, but the competition that is occurring today at the retail level is so robust that um, you do lose your ability to influence um, those choices. I think it's also, uh, there's some legal issues too with what they're able to do. 
if there is a uh, you know some price gouging, they can't really do anything. Uh, once they sell it to the distributor, because that's how it works in this country, is that the manufacturers of alcohol spirits, or you know even fermented spirit, fermented alcohol, uh, they sell it to a distributor who then owns it. You know, so they the distiller or the brewer no longer has any control over it. Uh, it can pipeline marketing dollars down. That's different, but. Um, uh, the distributor is the one who would have to make that, uh, you know, comment anyway. And I'm not sure it's legal for anyone to dictate what a retailer or uh, yeah. restaurant can do. Earlier today, we visited the Cooperage in Lebanon, Kentucky, and found it to be totally fascinating. So, could you at least tell us where you get your wood? Well, we uh, we own our own cooperage. We have two cooperages. We here. Yeah, we, can, yeah. uh, we have tours, um, and then there's one down in Alabama that really does a lot of Jack Daniel stuff. Um, we also own our own mills, and the wood comes from all over the place. Um, and then we've got folks out there that are pretty specific in what they're looking for, and. and um, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of white oak, uh, fortunately, uh, uh, out there, and I think because of um, the, you know, the, the large swath of forestry that it's, it's found in, um, we may be getting it as far north as kind of Minnesota and then down south uh, towards the top of Georgia. All right, we have time for uh, one more question. And then from there, we're going to watch The Greatest Race. Does anyone else have a question? Oh, right here. This will be our final question. Uh, yeah, I'm just curious, where are you targeting uh, like globally outside of the U.S. at this point? Um, I still have a lot of family in Canada, so I'd like to get more of a forester in Quebec and Ontario and B.C. and stuff like that. So we, we're certainly looking up in Canada. I, was in the UK this week, and we've got a nice uh, base of business that's taking uh, taking root there. And Australia's an important market for us. And at this stage, those are really that's where we're kind of limiting our focus to. And, and um, you know, I, I think we'll we'll look. Uh, we'd like to get something going in Asia, and certainly duty free, global duty free is an area. Um, that, that were really interested in, especially with this receiver stuff. All right, now I'd like to turn it back over to Pat. Yes, before we close out tonight, <clears throat> on behalf of the Kentucky Derby Museum, I wanted to thank Campbell and all the support that Brown Foreman shows the Kentucky Derby Museum over the course of many, many years. And uh, what Brown Foreman means to this community is um, completely unbelievable and uh, thank you for everything you do in the community and particularly thank you selfishly for all that you do for the Derby Museum. So could I ask for a round of applause?